Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. My sermon this evening is about being a professor, uh, because I think all Christians are called to be professors. I don't mean that in the strictly academic sense. I don't think you need a PhD to be a professor. I don't think you need suede elbow patches on your jackets to be a professor or ineligible writing um, or illegible writing to be a professor. (laughs) Uh, By professor, I mean people who profess, people who declare, people who have something to say, people who are standing on some great truth and they can articulate something about that great truth. And every single person here Uh, You are charged with knowing your scripture, and you're charged with knowing your Christ at the center of the scripture, and you're charged with having something to say, something of great veracity to say about that Christ at the heart of the scripture. But we have many people throughout human history who dared to speak inconvenient truths, right? They dared to believe that, uh, that truth was more important than their difficult circumstances, and so they gave voice uh, to things that um, took great uh, courage uh, to enunciate. And uh, I'm thinking about Socrates, for example. You may know that he was given ample room to leave Athens. I mean, people said, now, Socrates, in about three months' time, you're going to be tried. And that wouldn't end up well, right, buddy? Like, they're going to make you drink hemlock. And he said, no, 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 it's better to stay here to stand on the truth that I've been declaring for years and to drink the hemlock to show people that truth is more important than one human life. That was his profession. Uh, and Rosa Parks did something that, uh, that offered a great profession of truth to the world. She, you know it. I mean, she had this very scripted plan to sit in a particular place on the bus that was reserved for white people. And she did it very deliberately because she said, this inequality based on race has got to stop. And so she engaged in a symbolic professional action to make that declaration to the world. And we still remember her to this day because of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous uh, German theologian, did something similar. You may know that he was thrown into a concentration camp under Fuhrer Adolf because he dared to uh, pen a tract, a religious tract, that had the title, Jesus is my Fuhrer. That was seen as seditious by the regime. So he was put in a concentration camp. But that was his way of speaking truth to power. And what about you? What about your own life? Have you ever had the courage to speak a deep truth of your own? Uh, I I recently heard a student tell me about something good that had happened in her terribly abusive family. Her father is a very manipulative and abusive and cruel man. And at one point, the wife who had taken this for so many years got a, a, a steel spine and said, look, if you ever do that to me again, you'll never see me or the children again. We're leaving. And don't test me on this. I thought, well, good for you. Good for you. Subsequently, she has left, and she's starting a good life of her own away from that kind of physical, you know, horrific treatment. But she had the courage to speak a transcendent truth. 
And so I, I, I want to encourage you tonight to be a professor, to, to be somebody whose life is grounded upon a great truth and that you would have the courage to speak that truth. And this is what Jesus is inviting in Matthew 16, because in Matthew 16, we actually have two professions, two declarations. The first declaration is when Peter professes that Jesus is the Christ. And the second declaration is when Jesus professes that Peter is the rock. So let me talk about those two declarations, one about the Christ and one about the rock. And hopefully we'll have something to profess by the time we're done here. Let's talk about the Christ. And I invite you to follow along from verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? I want to first notice the setting, because the setting is incredibly important. It was a very famous place and very controversial for being politically and religiously compromised. That's the best way and cleanest way of putting it. It was named after two politicians, Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and Philip, the son of King Herod. It originally had a Jewish name, this small town, but Philip, in order to curry favor with the emperor, decided it would be a good idea to show public deference to him and name this Jewish community after him. So he changed the name to Caesarea, but added his own name too, because who doesn't want a little personal glory? So it became Caesarea Philippi. Now, the location of this is also really important. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is one of the most criticized mountains in the Old Testament. Why? Because it was a place of shrines and ashrams that people would erect in order to worship false gods. And so the prophets are constantly railing against Mount Hermon. But in Jesus's day, Philip the Tetrarch, son of King Herod, thought it would be a good idea to curry favor with the pagans. So he uh, constructed a temple for the Greek god Pan at a cave on the side of Mount Hermon that had a spring that was coming out of the cave. And the locals would often refer to it as the gates of hell. It was believed that this was a portal to the underworld. That is the setting uh, that sends a message. And the message has to do with the authorities of paganism and politics. Uh, it's a place that declares Caesar and Caesar's gods are the lords of this world. And Jesus chooses this place, this place, not Bethlehem where he was born, not Nazareth where he grew up, not the temple, not Jerusalem, he chooses this place to reveal his identity. That is like some American announcing that they are now the emperor of the United States of America at the Washington Monument. It's a very, it's a very important location, and Jesus chooses this very deliberately. So in this hot spot of religious and political compromise, Jesus takes a poll. He asks his disciples about the throng of fans that are following him everywhere. What do the fans say about me? And what's interesting is they all say good things. None of them at this point are mad at Jesus. That comes later. 
But they're giving him all sorts of lofty accolades. Some say you're John the Baptist. That's an amazing thing to say about somebody. Why? Because John the Baptist is quite dead. He's very dead, which means that whoever Jesus is, he's a resurrected person. That God was so impressed with John the Baptist, he brought him back to life, slapped a new name on him, called him Jesus, and gave him to the world. Other people say, no, 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 he's not John the Baptist. He's like Elijah or one of the prophets, meaning he has the lips of God. This is the man who speaks the authoritative, veritable words of the Almighty. We can't get any closer to divinity right now than somebody like that. So they're all giving him compliments. And lots of people today outside this room have lots of ideas about Jesus and always have. Some of them positive, some of them negative. Uh, You may know that the the Talmud, that uh, collection of religious Jewish texts that was uh, coagulating several hundred years after Jesus's ministry, calls Jesus Balaam's ass, or they call Jesus a warlock. In other words, they have a fairly negative view of Jesus of Nazareth. Jefferson, very famously in his redaction of the New Testament, believed Jesus to be one of the greatest philosophers that has ever lived, but believed the miracle stories about Jesus were accretions that came along later. So he's a philosopher for Thomas Jefferson. But for Marcus Borg, the recently deceased New Testament theologian, uh, Jesus is a spirit person, uh, likened uh, by Borg to uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, folks like that. In other words, he was deeply in touch with the, uh, the spirit of Um, of an imminent God, but he was not in any way divine nor supernatural. And other people believe that Jesus was a revolutionary. Some people believe he was a cynic sage. Some people believe that he was a mystic. Lots of opinions out there about Jesus. And so if you were to ask your friends, you know, in your own circles, well, who do people say that Jesus is? I'm sure that you'd get a lot of opinions. Uh, But then Jesus puts his apprentices on the spot. He says, I understand about them, but what about you right here, right now? What do you have to say? Who do you say that I am? Who do you profess me to be? And Peter, because he's always the one to pipe up, pipes up and says, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Gives him the title. You are the Christ. What is this? name, this title, Christ. What does it mean? Well, it is not a last name, as you may know. Uh, It is an Old Testament title. The Hebrew for the word Christ is Mashiach. We roughly translate that or transliterate that as Messiah. It means anointed one, and that's not metaphorical language. It's referring to a physical anointing. Kings, priests, and prophets were very often anointed with oil. Oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And just like oil would stick to your skin and it's hard to scrub off, that was the idea that the Holy Spirit would draw near to this person and confer upon them authority. So at these coronation services, people were spattered or smeared with oil. Uh And so in the Old Testament, uh, this, this title especially early in the Old Testament, was liberally applied to a lot of people. There were a lot of Christs out there, a lot of Messiahs, a lot of Mashiachs, a lot of people that received a spattering of oil. Um, 
And the idea was we are setting aside this prophet, this priest, this king in order to represent God in some very real way and to bring God's justice, righteousness, and character into the present moment and into our difficult situations. But as Old Testament history rolled along, you could tell that none of these messiahs were up to snuff. None of them were great. Even the people that we celebrate as heroes like David and Solomon were terribly flawed and might not have been anti-Christs, but some days they were pretty close. And so there was a development within the prophetic literature of the Old Testament looking forward that said something like this, all of our former Christs have been insufficient. We need a better one. We need one person to do what all these other anointed ones have failed to do. And so prophets like Isaiah look into the future and they see a great universal emperor coming into the world from God who would do what no other anointed one could do. And that's why Isaiah in the 61st chapter of his book prophesies using these anointed words. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Text has something to do with a great anointed one, a person spattered not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. This isn't just a symbolic act, act anymore. No, this is somebody who is anointed from on high, which actually happens at Jesus' baptism, as you may remember. Uh, and that's why Peter, at this moment, is given a great insight, and he mouths the truth. Peter got it right. We often note when he gets it wrong. Let's note when he gets it right. You are the Christ. What does that mean for Peter? You are the one that has been promised forever. You are the only legitimate one to bear that title. All of the other anointed ones that we've had in the past have let us down. You won't do that. You won't let us down. You're the end of pain. You are the dawn at the end of the nightmare. You are the general of justice. Come into the present to heal the world. And Jesus doesn't shy away from Peter's assessment. Instead, he wraps his arms around it. He agrees and says publicly, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, he's saying to Peter, look, you didn't get this because of a lucky guess. This wasn't just your intuition. This was about revelation. God spoke into your ear. You heard something, didn't you? And now you're speaking it out to the world. You are professing that in this odd context of compromise, of religious and political idolatry and, and false monarchies, that there is a truer emperor, a truer king who is here, the anointed one, the Christ, right in the middle of this apostolic huddle, right here, right now. So that's the Christ, and that's what Peter has to say, names Jesus as the Christ. Then Jesus seems to return the compliment. This is what he says about the rock in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus promises to build his church. The Greek word is ekklesia. It just means assembly of people, a gathering of people, a community. He says, I'm going to build it on a rock. Now that's where the controversy comes in. Who or what is the rock? 
It's a question that lots of theologians have written about throughout the ages. Well, there are basically two perspectives. Um, The first perspective sees Peter's own person and personality as the rock upon which Christ is building his church. The second uh, perspective says, no, 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 it's Peter's profession of Jesus as the Christ that is the rock. And so Peter is rocky or strong so long as he makes that profession. Those are, in a nutshell, the two different perspectives. Um, Now, why would people believe the first perspective? Or what do they believe about it? Simply that Jesus' words relate to Peter and Peter's personality. That's the rock. Well, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters have developed this idea over the centuries, believing that in this scene, Jesus is consecrating Peter as the first leader and pope of the church and giving him the keys to the kingdom. So he gets to open or close heaven. Uh, And Peter's successors through the laying on of hands, become popes as well and hold that same authority. The evidence cited for this perspective is uh, pretty uh, simple and clear. The words Peter, in Greek Petros, and rock, in Greek Petra, are intentionally very similar. Peter is often mentioned as a leader in the apostolic band, and Peter is the most quoted apostle in the Gospels. So they conclude that clearly Jesus is setting aside Peter and his office uh, as um, primary and as the the beginning of the papacy. But then there's a second perspective, which says, no, 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 that's not right. Jesus' words relate to Peter as he professes that Jesus is the Christ. The emphasis is on the profession, not Peter's personality or his person. I actually think this perspective, maybe not surprisingly to you, is the right one. I think it's far more biblical Because Peter is anything but a rock. Have you read anything about the Apostle Peter? Maybe the next verses, like right after this moment, like three seconds later. Because Jesus changes Peter's title. Um, Jesus couldn't be speaking of Peter's own person as a rock because in the very next verses, he calls him Satan. Because Peter has his own definition of what being Christ means, and it doesn't involve crosses, death, and rejection by religious authorities. It involves success and winning. And so whenever Jesus tells Peter and the rest of the apostles he has to die, Peter says, forbid it, Lord. God forbid it, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a, what, you remember? Stumbling block to me. Rocky imagery, but not positive. Right? So you're Satan, and you're a big lump in the middle of the road that people fall over. Okay? So there's that, just a few verses later. Later, um, we learn that Peter's life becomes increasingly complicated and demonstrates that he is more of a sand pile than a stone because he denies Jesus three times, unlike the other ten apostles, and he joins the Judaizers and won't eat with the Gentiles. Galatians 2 talks about that. Um, Also, in Ephesians 2, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he writes about rock theology. He writes about the foundation stone of the church. And who does he say is the foundation stone of the church? Jesus Christ is the foundation of the stone of the church, upon which the apostles are set. All of the apostles, not just Peter. Um, And lastly, the authority of the keys, the binding and loosing on earth and in heaven, was shared among all the apostles. In verse 19... If you want to look at it, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That you is a plural in Greek. I will give y'all the keys to the kingdom of heaven. 
It's not singular, just referring to Peter. The same plural is used in John chapter 20, whenever Jesus breathes on the disciples and gives them authority, saying, you can bind and loose. What I'm saying to you is, I believe that scripture very clearly teaches that it is not Peter's personality that is the rock, but the confession that made Peter rocky and strong. It is this thing that makes uh, Simon into Peter. You know, we have, I take great comfort in this, by the way, I'm not, I'm not busting on our boy. Because Peter, in so many ways, is just reflective of who we are. We zig and we zag and we knock around just like he does. But the truth of Peter's profession never trembles for a moment, never becomes a sand pile. It is the only thing, in fact, that ever makes somebody as wishy-washy as Peter strong and resilient and rock-like. He is the rock-like figure as he names Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus says to him that this, people that profess me as the Christ, become a rock upon which the whole enterprise is constructed. And more than that, the troop, the brigade, the disciples that are founded upon this rock are able to break down the gates of hell. I want you to notice the aggression in that language. It's not defend us from the attacks of hell. In fact, it's, the, it's really far more forceful. It says, no, 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 hell has its defenses and you are going to break them into pieces. You will break them down. Now, notice that that retreat of evil or failure of evil is entirely dependent upon the profession of the church. In other words, the church is not just a group of people that gets together who happens to like each other sometimes, or at least once a week when we see each other. The church is not just a group of people that engage in social justice or certain patterns of behavior that we think make the world better. The church does not exist just to, you know, talk about little hair-splitting doctrines and debate endlessly. The church is not here to make a stand for one country or another country. No, the church has a solid profession that makes it powerful, that makes it aggressive against the powers and torments of hell. And it's the profession of Jesus as the unique Christ. Whenever you have a church that ceases to speak about Jesus in this way, it loses its Holy Spirit power. It loses its anointing. The church has one job to do, and it's amazing how often we get distracted from it. How many churches have sold out the cross because it speaks a negative word about humanity and might lower our self-esteem, or speaks, uh, or speaks in metaphorical ways about the resurrection of Jesus, well, it's just the rebirth of hope within our hearts or some nonsense like that. I am not interested in a palatable Christ because if I could make Jesus in my image, he wouldn't save any of you or me for that matter, right? We domesticate Christ at our endless peril. And so instead, it's far better to accept the biblical portrait of our iconoclast, the one um, who makes all the difference by being the Christ that we cannot be, the one who dies and rises again for people like us. That's the Christ upon whom the church is founded and we lose our aggressive power when we lose that message. And so this is my concluding word to all of us tonight, a challenging word. What about you? What do you profess? What do you declare? <clears throat> I don't mean what do you just think in your head or feel in your heart. I mean, what do you say? What do you have to say? What, what words 
fall from your mouth or spill out from your typing fingers most frequently? Um, what Messiah do they declare? And do we dare, do we dare to join Peter in his dangerous and revolutionary profession? Do we dare to say that Jesus is more, that he's more than just incisively intelligent, morally impressive, controversially inclusive, intuitive, mystical, a great avatar of the heavens? Do we in fact dare say that no, there really is only one rescue plan and one man who put it into effect, and it's the one we call Christ? Jesus the Christ, and he is in a class, to quote T.D. Jakes, he is in a class all by himself. Wasn't that a good T.D. Jakes impression? Anyway, but he's in a unique class. There's nobody else like him. And I think this is a harder question than we often realize. I don't think it's actually easy to call Jesus because the implications, excuse me, call Jesus the Christ because the implications of such a profession are bottomless bottomless implications if Jesus really is the unique Christ of God, especially if you happen to live, and we all do, in Caesarea Philippi. All of us live in Caesarea Philippi, a land of compromise, of idols, both political and religious, little Christs who want to sell themselves to you, endlessly sell themselves to you. And what Peter is saying, and his whole life traces this profession out in very clear terms is that if you say yes to Jesus, it means saying no to a lot of other would-be messiahs out there. A yes to Jesus Christ means no to all other supreme governors. Lots of things want to be your supreme governor. The government, some anti-government movement, individualism, communalism, capitalism, Marxism, the sexual revolution, empathy, Identity politics, racial prejudice, family values, career advancement, feminism, patriarchalism, gambling, hoarding, academic status, dressing for success, using people as objects, whatever it is, there's some Christ, false Christ with darkened eyes who's speaking into your life saying, follow me and I'll give you everything you've ever wanted. All I require from you eventually is everything you've got. Um, these false Christs demand unending, unyielding loyalty from us. You remember the demotivators posters? They're like the antithesis of the motivating posters. You know the ones I mean with the black border and the white letters that say something benign and stupid. And you find them in like dentist's office because they're supposed to give you great comfort as you get a root canal. And it says something like effort. And underneath it, it says like, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams, which is supposed to mean something. And, um, and there's like a very beautiful picture of flowers or, or people parachuting for some reason. Um, well, demotivators are the opposite of, of, of those. So my favorite demotivating poster is an Incan pyramid with an altar at the top of it that is covered in blood. And, and underneath it is the white word loyalty. And underneath that word, it says, all we're asking here is that you give us your heart. Uh, yeah. That's your false uh, Messiah, friend. That's what they want from you. They want everything. They want everything over time. And by the way, it's not like the Jesus who wants everything in order to heal you. They want everything to own, possess, control, and destroy you. That's what false messiahs do. Uh, and they all become tyrants. 
demanding blood while leaving your soul to starve and wither into nothingness. Um, you know who understood this difference between power of the world and the true power of our Christ was Endo. Sashako Endo, the author of the book Silence, the novel Silence, which is about Jesuit missionaries in Japan. Well, there's this very famous scene in which clergy were asked to betray Jesus publicly by stepping on a clay picture of him called a fumi. And if they were to step on the picture of him, they would not be executed. Uh, so they could apostatize and leave Christianity and be safe, physically safe from their, uh, from their aggressors. And at one very controversial point of the book, uh, the main character imagines that he's being spoken to by the Fumi. The Jesus portrayed on it says, trample on me, trample on me. This is the reason that I came into the world, to be trampled upon by men. Now, lots of people have regarded that as a very controversial ending. I regard it with some ambivalence, um, but it does convey a beautiful truth. All other messiahs, all other would-be anointed ones will make us hurt. There is only one king, one czar, one fuhrer, one monarch who was hurt and trampled for us. And it was Jesus, the one who laid down his life, who took our abuse, who took our aggression, who took our sin, things known and unknown, things done and left undone, and withered away and died for you and for me, was trampled for us. That's the kind of king we have, and that's why we profess him. It's not just because he's our boss. It's because he's our boss who gave it all away, gave it all away for you. And so our profession of Jesus as the Christ is the most important profession we will ever make. All other Christs are destined for the dust buried under decaying epitaphs. Only Jesus, a risen Jesus, will not diminish in his Christness, not after a year, not after 10, not after a million. And only his clemency will endure forever. He is the rock and all other ground is sinking sand. And when you stand upon that truth, you become stone yourself. You become tough and resilient, just like the one upon whom you are founded. And so now I invite you to perform a revolutionary act and to commit sedition. And I mean that, sedition against the world and all its little fake messiahs. Because tonight we have an opportunity to mimic Peter's profession and to speak some of the most dangerous and liberating words ever written, the Nicene Creed. Because when Jesus asks you, who do you say I am, we have an answer. And now I invite you to stand as we say it together. <clears throat> we have lost, they took